Hey guys, good to see you. How you doing today? Got something pretty cool going on this morning. Questions you never thought you could ask in church. Here's how it works. If you got one of these, I want to invite you right now to pull it out. Because what we're doing today is inviting you to text in anonymously any question that you have on God, theology, the Bible, church, how it intersects with life. And I am going to do my best to not fall flat on my face and field them right here on the spot. Now, here's how it works. I know that in this 1030 crew, there are questions brewing. My experience in church work, though, is that um, you're afraid to ask them. Maybe a little hesitant, maybe a little embarrassed. Not all of you, but I think I'm speaking to a number of you here that, that are identifying I've grown up in the church and been involved in ministry for so many years, and I have found that so many people who are new to churches are afraid to ask because they think they're going to stick out, sound weird, or be judged. And I've met so many people who have been believers for decades who are embarrassed to ask them because they feel like other people think they should know the answer already. They feel like maybe it expresses doubt that they don't want to come face to face with, or they're simply just afraid to ask. There's something very near and dear to me here at FOF, something I believe personally, and something that I'd really like to permeate how we approach this this Q&A time today. It's one of our core values, and I just want to invite you to read it with me, okay? It says this, we believe the church needs to be a place where people can come and see that Christians are real people, experiencing joys, passions, and struggles. Because of this, we strive to communicate God's truth and share our experiences in open and honest ways. We're not done. We believe it's important as a community to be as honest about our shortcomings, authentic in our lives, and sincere in what we teach. We want to be humble as a church and express our faith in a way that is genuine. Have you ever been in a church where you just felt like everyone were a bunch of posers? You know, man, I never want to see FOF be guilty of that. So what we're inviting you to do right now is text in any question. Make them honest. Make them real. Make them tough. Nothing's off limits. About God, life, theology, or the Bible, text them into this number right now, and I will field them on the spot. Here we go. Now, as you start texting, I'm going to kick us off with a couple that were emailed to me right before the event, okay? Here's question one. Scripture speaks of heaven not as a place up there that you go to when you die, but rather to concepts such as heaven on earth and and a new earth. And so, what happens to your soul when you die? You are worshiping the Lord, glorifying the Lord, so where? I and others need this clarification again. You're absolutely right that the scriptures do speak to um, what we typically want to call eternity as God restoring and renewing earth, like an Eden, to be a place where we raise from the dead and inhabit just how we intended it to be. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a concept or a place called heaven now. See, even if you die now and Christ has still not come again, take my grandma or my dad, 
They still get to go to be with the Lord in his presence in a way that's far more concentrated than the presence that we experience right here, right now. So is heaven for real? Yes. But heaven as we think about it in a just dead kind of disembodied state is not forever. Heaven, if I can give the terminology, is a really cool waiting room. All right? It is a really cool waiting room in the presence of God waiting for resurrection to come. Hopefully that helps. Now, number two, why is it that so many Christians are compelled to think that their theology is the right biblical theology and want to debate? Well, because people are full of themselves. And overconfident people always tend to think that they're always right, don't they? God not being an exception. Now, I think it's good that if someone is convicted or, or strong in their beliefs, that they say so and they stand by it. Where it gets weird is when they start bludgeoning people over the head as a result. And, uh, and personally, I think Christians should be debating and conversing more because I find it makes us sharp and I find when we're open to other viewpoints and other ways of looking at things... It only makes us better. It only draws us closer. So don't be afraid of debate, but don't be afraid to get into it either. And finally, from the emails in, as the young couple from Greece came to speak, this happened in early June, uh, the one man said he'd rather do mission work in Greece or Turkey than in the inner city of Chicago where he grew up. Why? Because there is a church in every corner if you want it? Because of fake Christians? Honestly, I don't know. That would be a question we'd have to ask him. But I will take a stab at it. Jesus once said, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Have you found this? Sometimes it's easier to talk about your faith and share it with people that you're meeting for the first time than those that you've known your entire life. Isn't any different for career missionaries. I wonder if somehow that's the case. But in talking to this couple, I know this as well. Sometimes God grabs your heart for a certain kind of people. And I know in talking to this couple that God had grabbed their heart for Muslim refugees. Now, are they in the inner city Chicago? Yeah. To the concentration that they are in Istanbul? No. And so I know that in this couple's instance, they followed what they thought God was calling them to in the mission field that they're supposed to be on. Great questions. Hopefully that gave you enough time to text. Let's have at it. All right, 4,000. Okay. All right, just uh, kick me on the gut on the first one here. I love it. If a believer gets divorced for reasons other than unfaithfulness, is it true that they are committing adultery if they remarry? And we're out of time. Sorry, guys. It, uh... <laughs> hey, you know, who's ever here asking that? Just fantastic, fantastic question. All right. You got to give me about 90 seconds of latitude on this one because it ain't a simple one, all right? If you read scripture and you start in Deuteronomy 24, Moses lays out decrees from God about the process to go through if someone chooses to get a divorce, quote, for any indecent thing, not defined. By the time of Jesus, religious leaders come along and challenge Jesus with the question, Can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? I love how Jesus answers it. He says, you're asking the wrong question. 
Don't be so concerned about what instances or, 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 or options are open for divorce as much as you're concerned with fighting to revive your marriage. And so anytime that we're starting at a question of can I get out of this before asking the question, how can I do everything in my power to resuscitate this, we're already on shaky footing. That being said, we live in a world filled with evil people. Some of you have been married to some of them, right? Some of you may still be. And so there are a number of examples given in Scripture under which God gives permission for divorce. And that's specifically, in my wording, how you have to approach this question. Examples. Arguably, he does not give a comprehensive list, and I'll tell you why. Jesus, in that same passage in the Gospels, gives one instance where he describes it as permissible, and that is marital unfaithfulness, adultery, rampant addiction to pornography, child abuse, sexual abuse, you know, things like this, things that would fall in that parameter. But it's interesting that Paul will come along later in 1 Corinthians 7 and give another instance that Jesus never seems to give allowance for. So is Paul just washed up? Or does he interpretively understand something that Jesus per se may not be giving the end-all, be-all, some total description there in Matthew 19, but an example. And so what that means is there are reasons in this world where divorce is a better option. Reasons where it might even be God-honoring. And under certain circumstances where a believer is free to remarry. But I want to encourage you that if you're asking this question in a very personal way today, or if this is resonating with anyone else, don't act rashly. Even if your marriage is a mess, this thing called marriage is something so amazing that God created, so sacred. Don't rush it because you're looking for relief. I don't know what your circumstances happen to be in right now, but I want to invite you, come talk to me. Don't worry about being judged. You can put a face with your number, and I would love to help guide you or point you to people that can help guide you through this. I apologize for spending a little too long on that, but I thought it needed the time. Fantastic, fantastic question. Next one. Can I go over to Beth's house today? No. All right, does God have a problem, changing gears, does God have a problem with people taking mood-altering drugs like antidepressants? There seems to be a stigma around it in the church. Yeah, there does seem to be a stigma around it in the church, and it's really too bad. Does God have a problem with you taking chemotherapy, antibiotics, anesthesia at surgery? Somehow mental illness and emotional struggle has become characterized as a sign of weakness. Well, I suppose it is. Just like physical struggle is a sign of weakness. Hey, newsflash, we're all weak people. And we all have chinks in our physical, emotional, and spiritual armor. 
God has given us a wonderful gift in this thing called earth. Properties and in, in, in the plants and medicines and things that are synthesized that can be of great benefit in this world. Your depression, your schizophrenia, your bipolar, or whatever I might be speaking to right now is not somehow a sign that you're a spiritual failure. Truth be told, some of the greatest spiritual giants have probably struggled with this. So no. No, God does not have a problem. Provided you're not doing it as an escape from him, an escape from reality, an escape for not having to deal with your struggles and hoping to just dull them away. Be careful of addiction. Be careful of making yourself a slave to things that become an easy substitute. Hopefully enough on that. Um, okay, here's one. Why doesn't the LCMS ordain women? LCMS stands for Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It happens to be the church body that we um, are affiliated with here at Fellowship of Faith. Specific reason why, um, and I'll speak to LCMS specific, okay? It has nothing to do with some kind of idea that, that, that society should be patriarchal, that men are better than women, that somehow male is the image of God and female isn't, that, 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 that women are subservient, that women aren't gifted, or anything like that, okay? So let's just get all that nonsense out of the way right away. The reason this church body, um, and I mean the denomination, doesn't ordain women is because of the way they read and interpret two to three very specific passages in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 14, second, uh, excuse me, 1 Timothy 2, and a couple of other corroborating and supporting ones as well. There's a lot of debate on how these passages should be best interpreted. And great God-loving people have come down on two different sides um, throughout Christian history. And I think the debate needs to continue. And, and people on both sides need to be open to hearing the other side because when the debate is good, it's when people are really trying to honor what God's word says. But I think it's a, a wake-up call to all of us that no matter what side of this fence you are, we have to be open to constantly discovering more purely what God's word says. Great question. All right. All right, why and how does our Ten Commandments, um, basically I think this is asking, differ from other denominations, specifically 1 and 2 verses 9 and 10? Have you ever stumbled across this? Everyone talks about the Ten Commandments, right? That, like, have you ever gone to a Christian bookstore and seen like, like, like one of these wall plaques or this bookmark and go, you order it different than I do? Here's basically the main distinction it comes down to, however, not the only one, Okay. One order is this, commandment one, you shall have no other gods before me. Everyone's on the same page there. Number two, you shall not form, create, fashion, or make any graven image, all right? Which would then be followed by number three, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Now, if you're already off kilter with the order that I gave you, that probably means that you grew up in a Catholic, Orthodox, or Lutheran background, all right? Because their ordering is this, commandment one, you shall not have any other gods before me, and they include the graven image as a part of it. And then they go to two, as you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, and Judaism has their own way of doing it as well. Challenge one, read the, quote, Ten Commandments. You'll find them in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 
five or six. Um, count how many commands are there, okay? There's more than 10. So why do we call them the 10 commandments? Because later on, Moses calls them the 10 commandments. So you're like, dude, how do you order these? Especially in the Hebrew language where they didn't have paragraph spacing or word spacing and different traditions have sought to order them in different ways over a logical frame. I guess the good news is they're the same at the end of the day, no matter what system you're looking in. It's just, you call it one or two, all right? Good fist fight for your neighbor over that one. All right. Now, here's another one. When did the Lord's prayer add, for thine is the kingdom, power, and glory? Okay, you know how that ends in the Lord's prayer in, in Protestant circles? Pull out your Bibles. You'll find one under your chair. Open up to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to guess at the verse. I don't know where the verse is. Um, find the subtitle that says Lord's Prayer or Prayer. And you'll find it. And you're going to see Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. If I'm off on this and it's Matthew 5, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. It's tucked in there. I know it by heart. I don't know it on the page by address. It is 6. Great. Um, you're going to see that Jesus says, don't babble on like the pagans. This is how you should pray. You see it? Do you see how it doesn't end with the typical ending we put on, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory? Do you see that? Okay? Now, I like getting like one dude nodding his head. Do you, I mean, am I missing you? Did, do you see that? Okay. Do you see the footnote next to it that leads you down to a, underneath, and it says like later manuscripts added this on? See that? All right. Here's where it comes from. We do not have, and by we, I mean the church at large or humanity. We do not have in some museum the Gospel of Matthew, the original, behind glass. All right? We do not have, as far as we know, I mean, hey, maybe we do, but as far as we know, we can't go back and reference, like, the original manuscript that Matthew wrote. We have copies. Thousands and thousands of copies. And every so often, a copy will have something a little different. It'll add something. It'll delete something. It'll word it a little bit differently. And the Lord's Prayer is one of these examples. Now, do you see in that footnote how it says later manuscripts? Okay. Now, if you're trying to get the original, would you look at an early manuscript or a late manuscript? All right, well, maybe, unless the early manuscript is written by a bunch of freaks, all right? So it depends. It, it isn't quite that cut and dry, but you get the sense, right? Some manuscripts have that ending. Some don't. Honestly, that ending is probably not original to Jesus. That ending was probably added in the worship life of the early church because, well, it sounds cool. It does. It's worship-invoking. Just like you're not going to find the song that Mark wrote in the Bible, right? But does that mean it's bad to do? So probably what they would do is they would pray the original words of Jesus and they would all end it by like shouting that out together or something. That's where it comes from. That's the difference. Good question. All right. Would God frown upon women taking birth control? Even if it were for reasons other than the main purpose of preventing pregnancy. All right. I'm not a doctor. I don't know what reason two is. All right. Um, and I don't mean that flippantly, but, but maybe for medicinal reasons, um, hormones or whatever it might be, there's an effect. I, I'm not going to speak to that question. Let me just go to the former. Because the question of birth control is one that really isn't wrestled with today outside of Catholic circles, but had been for centuries in the church. 
It is interesting, and it's worth noting, that up until about the 1930s, most church bodies frowned on birth control. Most church bodies, maybe not relegating it to sin, would say it's probably something you shouldn't do or take part in. I can't get into all the reasons why on that. But I'll tell you how I approach it. You know, life is sacred and sex is sacred. All right? Let's start with life first. Any kind of birth control that would terminate a life, I think God would have an issue with unless there was a life hanging in the balance. But I don't see the scripture speaking to birth control in any deliberate or or definitive way, which means there's freedom there to operate with sound judgment and wisdom. And it seems to me that through the scripture that sex has also been created for something more than just procreation. It's created for intimacy and enjoyment and pleasure and, and, and to generate love and commitment between a husband and a wife. And in those cases, I think God gives a, a, a freedom within that arena. Um, if you'd like to talk more, we can get into more specifics if you have them. Here's one. Can an infant or someone with a mental disorder still accept Christ even though they can't articulate it? I think there's a question behind the question here. And I think the question behind the question is this. The assumption behind the question that you have to articulate an acceptance of Christ to be saved. I disagree with that. I don't think you have to because I don't think the scripture says that. The scripture will talk about faith, repentance, and things like that. My question is, what is faith? See, if faith for you is reduced to coming to an understanding and then acting rationally upon that understanding, suddenly vast sections of humanity have been excluded from salvation. Your infant, gone. Damned. Your grandma, who got Alzheimer's and lost the ability, gone. Damned. What about people in a coma? What about people with severe mental disabilities? See, I think faith is something different. At its core, something closer to inclination of the heart because faith is something that God ultimately births within you. And do I think that infants and the mentally ill and those with Alzheimer's and probably vast other examples that I'm not even thinking about can have faith? You bet I do. Because without faith, there is no salvation, period. There is no such thing as an age of accountability. We're all sinners and under the judgment of God. So I encourage you to look at faith a little bit differently, maybe as a seed that gets planted by God, which of course needs to be cultivated and watered with the rational and the cognitive and other things. But hopefully that helps you cut through some of the minds that you might step on otherwise. I would like God's help to figure out who I really am deep inside. I have got good news for you. God wants to help you with that. The entire testimony of the scriptures is fundamentally at some level about this journey. If you want to go to bed and wake up the next day with a complete realization of who you are, I'm sorry. God just doesn't work that way. 
But what he invites you to do is seek him with all of your heart, and that by seeking him, you come to know yourself. And this is a quest that will take you across your entire life. Do not let that tire you out or scare you away. Because knowing God and knowing yourself is some of the greatest things you can ever know in this world. Is it wrong for someone to be baptized more than once? No. Mm -mm. Um, We can always get into motive and reason that can shape it, but fundamentally, no. An analogy I'll give you is this. Is it wrong to get vaccinated more than once? You know, like if I got vaccinated like a month ago, and I want to get vaccinated again, is, that, is there anything like wrong with that? It's going to hurt me? You know, is it going to offend doctors far and wide? No. Do I need to? No. There are certain instances and certain circumstances where people have sought this and have sought this out and wanted to do it. Is there something wrong with it? No, I don't think so, but I would simultaneously caution you about ever judging your baptism beforehand as ineffective, invalid, you know, a crock, just because maybe your heart wasn't fully in it, because of the state of place you were at, because you, you fell away in some intermittent period. You know, God, God has you, and, and baptism is not just about what you feel or believe in the moment. Let me refresh. All right. These, these are long. I believe I'm forgiven for my sins, but sometimes I think to myself, quote, your life is good, almost too good. I know I am so undeserving of all I have, and I fear that the rug may be pulled out from underneath me, that I'll have to suffer the consequences of my mistakes because our God, while not vindictive, is just. How do I deal with this? Have you ever been afraid of this one? Have you ever like been in those situations just going, I'm just waiting. It's like God's playing this cosmic game with me and he's just going to kind of, ha ha, you, you got comfortable, didn't you? You know, bam. You got to ask yourself, is that how God reveals himself? One of the, I, I struggle with this one a lot myself. And one of the things that I've constantly had to come back and choose to trust despite what I feel is this little teaching that Jesus gives where he says this. You know, if you go to your dad and you ask him for like an egg, is he going to give you a snake? If you go to your dad and you ask him for, a, for, for bread, is he going to give you a stone? Now, some of you are going, yeah, you don't know my dad. All right? <laughs> But Jesus concludes it and he says, if you, though you are evil, he's talking to us, though you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much your heavenly father, who is not capricious or shifting or changing, can you trust that God is who he says he is? That's tough. It can be really tough. But God invites us to pray boldly, not worrying that he's going to sabotage our prayer. You've heard this one, pray for patience, and yeah, God's going to give it to you. God invites us not to see him that way, but to trust him and say, I'm good, and I'm not looking to screw with you or torment you in your life. Can you trust me? Wrestle with that, because that's a place where faith will come alive. Now, another one, related but dissimilar. I know someone who had an abortion earlier in life. 
Then their next pregnancy was complicated later. Another had an affair with a married person earlier in their life, then wound up never being able to meet someone afterwards and get married. Is the latter of each situation justification for their sins or coincidence? Let me approach it this way. Are they being punished by God? No. Any punishment for your sins has been paid on a cross by Jesus. If you are a believer in Christ, your punishment has been paid, eternal and temporal, as the ancient liturgies put it. Okay? Now, does that mean God rescues us from all the consequences of our decisions? No. Get smashed drunk and smash into a tree and lose your leg. Does God forgive it? Yeah. Is God punishing you by saying, ah, I'm taking your leg? No. But do our actions in this world have consequences? Yeah, they do, and that's why God warns us against sin. This isn't just some fairy tale list of rules that, oh, isn't that fun to think about? It's because the stuff has teeth. Life has consequences, and God's like, it's going to hurt you. It's going to mess you up. Flee from it. It is that big a deal. Now, I don't know if the actions of these people resulted in these consequences or they happened to be random by other means, but it is not God punishing you. And for time's sake, finally, let me hit one more. Do you think the only way to fully understand the Bible is by reading it in its original languages? It seems like a lot is lost in translation. First, this side of eternity I don't think anyone will fully understand the Bible. But that doesn't mean it's not understandable. It is very understandable in many ways. But it's like a well that you can keep going deeper into and deeper into, discovering more and more richness. And original languages are a tool to help go to a deeper level. But I can tell you this, some of the most powerful, amazing, deeply devoted in tune with God people that this world has produced have been people that haven't known the original languages. Because while things can get shaded or lost in translation at time, never to such a degree that a clouds or masks God, his call on your life, his call for you in this world, his ways and his personality and his character are the foundational teachings that we've based ourselves on. So don't be afraid that somehow if you don't have original language work that you can't know God. You can be a spiritual giant without Greek and Hebrew. And yet at the same time, if you're hungry to go into that quest, then I encourage you to constantly pursue God deeper because that's what God's word is in and what it's about. His message to you, not for just some people like me to know, but for you to make a part of your life fantastic questions this morning, guys. And I want to invite you to keep on asking. Because when we're willing to ask, God, I find, often shows up. And even if we don't get the answers and it creates more mental and and spiritual thorns, God shows up. So keep up the quest and keep asking because it's there that God will grow you. I want to invite you to rise. And I just want to invite you to pray with me as we close this out today. Let's come for him right now.
Merciful God in heaven, we, uh, we thank you for revealing yourself, for teaching us and showing us who you are, who we are, and what you're about. God, may we never take it for granted. May we never be content. May we never, may we never handle your word and your truth lightly or flippantly, but may it lead us, God, even here today, to devotion, to commitment, to revelation, to wonder, and to awe. Capture our hearts, God. Capture our hearts today, we pray. May we live in your grace as that which defines us. May it permeate us, O God. Send your spirit forth. And all God's people said, Amen.